I want you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be moving on throughout the Bible as we are going through uh, every book of the Bible. We've looked at, um, I I counted earlier, a total of three lessons in Genesis. And um, we first started with the importance of Genesis. We looked at, after that, two different lessons talking about just stories of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, what true faith looks like. Uh, We looked at Genesis chapter 22. There's a lot of history that we could go over, but I do want to try and keep at least somewhat of a steady pace uh, and not not get um, distracted with all of the the beautiful things we could talk about. But I do want to keep going throughout the narrative. Um, And so we pick up at basically the beginning of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, you already um, have some stories of, of Moses and how he gets to the uh, how he gets to be exiled from Exodus at least for a certain amount of time for about around 40 years so we have a little bit of context um, now as we look at Exodus chapter 3 and a little bit into chapter 4 this is one of the most familiar stories for all Bible students which is the account of the burning bush where Moses really meets God um, I do think that Moses probably had at least some level of knowledge about uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, and I think you see some indications of that just from what the Hebrew writer says uh, about Moses, but ultimately, you still find um, Moses and really the rest of the Israelites in a position where they haven't really um, heard much from God, at least for not for a few years, and they have been left to this position where God ultimately was providing for them. As at the end of Genesis, you find that story of Joseph, one of the uh, sons of, of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob, and Joseph is that link, as we talked about in our Bible class not too long ago, that really brings, gives us context as to how the Israelites got into Egypt. Ultimately, it was deliverance. To a degree, there was a famine that was plaguing the lands, and so they are are uh, they find grace from God in in being delivered to Egypt. But over the span of uh, many years, there rises a Pharaoh that does not know Joseph, as it says at the beginning of uh, end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus. And after that time, Israel has been prospering much, and they have grown tremendously as a nation. And so the Pharaoh that does not know Joseph, he begins to fear Israel, and that leads to their slavery, their bondage, uh, and harsh treatment while they are in Egypt. And so um, at, uh, you go a little bit further into the first couple of chapters of Exodus, you find that during that harsh treatment, Pharaoh is killing all of the, uh, the male babies as, or, um, as he's trying to just keep the numbers down and really because of the fear that he has of, of Israel. And so Moses at one point as he is delivered by God's hand from that persecution, from that affliction from the Egyptians, um, he actually is raised in the household of Pharaoh. Uh, and all throughout you see God's grace and all throughout you see uh, the, the, the providence of God even in action as Moses is delivered from these things. But ultimately that brings us to Exodus chapter 3 because at some point he decides that he's going to try as we see in Acts. He, tries, he wants to deliver uh, Israel and kind of be a leader to some degree. He kills an Egyptian that is again harshly treating uh, one of his Israelite brethren and after that day, someone comes up to him as he's trying to break up a fight between two Israelites, and they kind of bring this up. He gets afraid, and he runs from, from Egypt, and he uh, is gone for a span of 40 years. And as he is gone for that time, he ha- kind of 
gets a family of his own and he is a shepherd and this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 3. And I just want to read this kind of verse by verse as we go throughout this study. I'll just say, I, th- I think there's much to learn within these couple uh, of, of chapters here, at the all of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. But I think there's um, especially some applications to make about how we get into a relationship with God. As I say, as you see on the screen, this is the moment where Moses meets God and in a very special way. And this actually relationship will continue and it'll develop in an even more beautiful and more special way. Um, But there are several lessons I think to take even into today in how we begin a relationship with God, how that is supposed to start, how we are, what we are supposed to understand about God when we are getting into that relationship. And then we'll end in the third point with really learning from the excuses ultimately that Moses is trying to make as God has given him a uh, really a commandment as he has given him a call to action. Well, we'll go ahead and begin at the very beginning by reading verses 1 uh, into verse 12. Break this up into just three different sections. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see his, this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In verse uh, 6, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And, and we'll go ahead and stop there for, for just a moment. We'll actually pick up in verse 11 in just a moment. But I just want to look at these first 10 verses here, especially as we start with uh, this first point of of how a relationship begins with God looking at this account with Moses. And I would just say before we even get to the first point, we all know who Moses is, and we, and we know the many great and, and wondrous stories that Moses is a part of, especially from here on out up until Deuteronomy, up until Joshua, where the people actually finally get to the promised land and they're about to take it and invade and conquer the land. But this is a man who will be able to have such a unique relationship with God that for one thing, it's going to be uh, talked about throughout the rest of Scripture, and Moses is going to be used as, as kind of a, a stand-in when talking about the law that God gives at Mount Sinai and kind of a representative of the law that God gives at Mount Sinai. He is, he is such a uh, revered character in the Bible story, and especially to the people of Israel. And now, you kind of think, while he's living, it doesn't really seem that way because they always tend to grumble against him. But especially afterward, they will always look back and, and look at him in, in really honor. And, and I would say respect. Now, all of that being said, that's kind of the context. 
notice where this relationship starts. At the very beginning, I went ahead a little bit. At the very beginning of the text, in verse 6, it says that when, after God has, um, first of all, told him to take off his sandals because it's holy ground, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does Moses do? But he hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, what you find is this is actually a very consistent theme throughout Scripture. It's not just with Moses. But again, remember the relationship that we're going to see between the Lord and Moses. That he'll be able to talk to him in a very special way. In a way that really isn't seen much after Moses dies. But even with Moses, this is where it starts. You actually have over in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Here Isaiah, he, he has a vision as it says in verse 1. In the year of King Isaiah's death. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And here you get, you get uh, I think, what is reminiscent of the glory that filled the temple when it was finished, when the construction had finished and Solomon was dedicating it. You see this same kind of imagery here in a very real sense that the, the glory of the Lord filling it with, with thick smoke and darkness. So you see that same imagery here. And in verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then Isaiah can actually, uh, can actually kind of focus and not be so distracted by that fear. Now, all of this just to say, both with Moses and with Isaiah, I think that this was appropriate fear. I think this is a scriptural beginning to the way every relationship with God should start. What do we always quote in Proverbs? That the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and fools despise it. And so, it, it, it not only is it a consistent instruction, it's, it's wisdom um, throughout the scriptures, but you see even with some of the characters that we hold up highly, and some of the characters that we have much respect for, even they start in this way. And I think it's because it is an example of how we are supposed to uh, start in our relationships always with the Lord. In Exodus chapter 20, we won't look at it right now, but Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20, what you find is when God comes and he tells the Ten Commandments, he gives the Ten Commandments to the people. You remember their response? They say to Moses, you go. We, it, is, it is good that we were able to hear that, but please, you go and you speak to God and you make sure that you bring everything back that he says because if he speaks again, we are terrified that we will die. And we're going to read in just a moment in Deuteronomy, God does not say, hey, hey, don't, don't feel that way. No, rather, they're actually commended for that response. Rather, that's the way it is always supposed to start. It's with the proper respect, the reverence, the awe. Um, now, as we look at these passages, I think it's good to really try to put ourselves in their, uh, well, sandals, and, and, and try to imagine that kind of scene as you see thick clouds and darkness approaching, and you know that this isn't just some random storm. This is just a fraction of the glory of the Lord. 
and it puts men to their it puts men on their knees and even holy men you look at Isaiah in the midst of an unclean people you would say well Isaiah isn't necessarily unclean but even with that being the case, even though he was a more holy man, a more righteous man than the rest of the generation around him, even he was brought to his knees. And, to, and like Moses, tried to hide his face because of that awe that he saw of the Lord. And I think that this is, uh, again, just a good example of the way it continues to be. And in in that every relationship begins with, like it says in verse 5, he will be treated as holy. And if you try to approach me in an unholy manner, in, in an unworthy manner, as you see in an example like Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu, that just leads to destruction. God will always be treated as, as awesome, uh, to, by the very definition of the word, awesome and, and fearful. And, uh, and we'll, that we should have that reverence for him. But I would just say as we move on from that, it doesn't just stay there. I think this is something that develops harmoniously really with love. We won't go there right now, but especially as you look at Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, there's that sin of the golden calf, and you see the people, while Moses is doing what they agreed upon, he's receiving the instruction of the Lord, he gets the tablets with the Ten Commandments, and God has given him some more instruction to give to the people, but before he comes down with the... Essentially, I like the way I've heard this before, but before the ink is even dry, they have committed, they have broken the first two commandments of the Ten and they've committed idolatry. And they have crafted an idol to, to try and um, supplement that idolatry. And they have even attributed the deliverance from Egypt. They attributed the victories that Jehovah, that the Lord had given to them, to this thing made by man, to this dead idol crafted by man. Now, after all of that, I think uh, kind of a depiction of what has occurred. Moses throws the tablets down there, are broken. I think kind of a, just an illustration of what they have done to the commandments of God. They have broken it. And now there is a great judgment that comes, that comes about. Moses cries out, who will, who will bring justice? Who is still for the Lord? The Levites come and they start bringing judgment upon the tribes of Israel. Now, what happens after that? Judgment comes. The people need mercy. The people need uh, a mediator to a degree. And Moses kind of uh, fills that role in Exodus chapter 33. And as God says, he's already given mercy. God says that he is going to send the people out. He's going to send his angel before them. But he is not going to be among his people. Otherwise, he will destroy them. And we kind of understand that with that kind of betrayal. We understand totally why the Lord would say something like that. If I go among them, I will destroy them. Because they have already proven to be an unfaithful bride so quickly after affirming that covenant. But as you look at that discussion between Moses and God, it's, a, it's beautiful how quickly. <laughs> it doesn't take much pleading uh, from, from a faithful man to, to change God mind, God's mind to a degree. It, it doesn't take much for God to say, okay, okay, I will give more mercy, I will give more grace, and I will go with Israel. Um, no, it doesn't mean the consequences aren't there. But what, you, but what you see here is Moses not staying in the same place as Exodus chapter 3 where he begins with his face hidden to the ground. I don't think Moses forgets the fear. Rather, I think that it does, as we just said a moment ago, I think that it develops along with a love for God and his commandments. And I think that is the, the main distinction between Moses and Israel really just throughout their history. Because while it started with fear, it really, never, it really never progressed past that. It kind of stayed stagnant. And ultimately, I think they forgot the fear of the Lord. 
And that was the main distinction between the faithful like Moses and the rest of Israel who tended to just forget God's commandments and forget all, the, uh, all of the ordinances that, that, that he had set out before them for their good. And really, uh, they, they just completely make a mockery of those commandments and make a mockery of that relationship by making these idols uh, all throughout from the beginning to the end of their history. Uh, but going over to Deuteronomy chapter 5, I do just want to read this very quickly. Just as we're talking about the, the way that they're, the, the, I think the right way that their relationship started. As he, uh, Moses is going through that, that scene at Sinai, he repeats what they said to him when they saw the glory of the Lord. In verse 24 he says, You said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. In verse 28, the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you, and they have done well in all that they have spoken. And then look at what he says about that, that this, this starting emotion that they had towards God. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Not too long ago, uh, we went through a study on just what Paul says in, uh, to Timothy in one of his letters to Timothy about how we are not to have a spirit of fear. I think a lot of times when... <laughs> Especially, you see this, um, there's some, there are some websites that you can go to that will kind of produce slides for you, like for PowerPoints, and especially there are, there are some like religiously affiliated uh, sites. And what's amazing is whenever you type in something like, I, I don't want to spend the money on them, so I generally don't have it, but I, I like to try and look and see what, what kind of slides would be available if you did pay for that. And especially when you look up something like fear, you will always find faith over fear or overcoming fear you'll always find fear in a negative connotation but the bible if you did a word study on fear and i'm planning on doing that at some point i don't know how soon but just to give you give you a heads up when you look at that word being used all throughout scripture just even just in the old testament what you find is the majority the vast majority of the usages are don't forget the fear of the lord and what we already cited it from Proverbs, and what we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This notion that that fear, that reverence, that respect for God is never to be forgotten, but rather it's to be the foundation where we begin in a humble way, realizing that He is greater, and that uh, the, the mercy that's being shown in just the fact that we are able to come to Him in this way. Um, it, it's, it's never to be forgotten, and what we find is, I think, uh, that is the main distinction between the faithful and the unfaithful is that those like Moses remembered where they began and they grew into loving the Lord and loving his commandments much like David but the rest who were unfaithful they didn't care about those commandments they didn't care about the principles that God had set before them they just wanted to, to move past the fear so that they could get back to their lives get back to their everyday lives but clearly that's not what God uh, ever has expected from us. Rather, he wants us to leave the, the old lives behind to serve him and make that our whole life. Well, finally, with this point, 
it does start with a call to action. In verse 10 of Exodus chapter 3, you find a very um, hefty, weighty responsibility given to Moses from the very beginning. And I do think that this is a good point to note because a lot of times when we have studies with people, when we're talking to non-believers, I think sometimes maybe there's a temptation, not maybe, there is a temptation to maybe try and soften the blow of the gospel or maybe try to soften up or not be as... um, not be as direct and and outright with the responsibilities that Jesus says he is bringing into our lives, should we follow him. But look at the approach that God has when he goes, when he starts talking to Moses. He doesn't kind of softly lead him into it. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he gets right down to the facts of this is what you are going to do for me. In verse 10, he says, uh, and he's already talked about it in the first uh, few verses there, but in verse 10, he says, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And so, not only is he going to have to go and lead the people of Israel out of bondage, and take that's already a weighty responsibility in itself, but he's also going to have to speak to Pharaoh, the one who is the head of that bondage, the very representation of the slavery and the cruel persecution that they are suffering at the time. Now Moses being just really a humble shepherd at this point, you kind of understand why he does start to make mistakes towards the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. But I, I, I love... I just love this, this, this thought that even from the very beginning, God is not trying to coddle him. Every single time someone comes to the Lord and every single time someone asks the question, what shall I do? The Lord never responds with, not a thing. Don't worry. Don't worry so much about it. No, he will be tr- He gives you the truth. And even when it hurts, even though it hurts, he very quickly gets to the facts. And... and if it's a humble heart, if it's an honest heart, like Moses, I would say, then, then what we find is a, is a beautiful relationship ensue. And so that's how I think every, it's just a model of how every relationship begins with God. It starts with that reverence and fear, and it's something that needs to grow and develop with love. And it is a, and at the very, from the very beginning, there is a call to action even for disciples today. Well, moving on in the text. After God gives this call to action in verse 10, picking up in verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, God said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now we'll stop there for just a moment. We'll pick back up in verse 13. But we'll come back to this. But just understand from the very beginning... As soon as Moses starts to give excuses, as soon as Moses starts to try to maybe wiggle himself out of the responsibilities that God is bringing, notice how God answers every time. Where does he bring the focus back to? As soon as he tries to give this, uh, this question, well, who am I? Uh, uh, and I do think that there's kind of a degree of that in verse 11, maybe not as much so towards as, as at the end of chapter 3. But who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I going to tell the sons of Israel is bringing them out of Egypt? And God says, hey, I, I'll be with you. And so just from the outset, there's a, there's a need to note that focus shift where God brings it back. But beginning in verse 13, look at how, look at the words the Lord uses. And, and we'll just talk about uh, this for just a moment. But in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, if you don't already know this, probably most of you do uh, here tonight, but if you don't already know this, that, that uh, at the very end of, of verse 14, when he is talking about his name being I am, um, it's probably capitalized in, in your Bibles. In verse 15, as you see on the screen, if you don't have a Bible with you, the Lord at the very beginning of the verse is also capitalized. And what you find is that this is just, it's the, the same word, but every time you find that term, the Lord capitalized, all the letters capitalized, it is just referring back to this name that God has given him. I am. Now, um, I just wanted to give that very briefly, just in case maybe you, you didn't know that. Now, this has great implication all throughout Scripture, and we'll look at those in just a moment. But just, just think about that description alone. When, when we talk to people, and we're introducing ourselves to people, or they're introducing themselves to us, what are some of the questions we ask? Uh, you, you just think about a visitor who come in. Well, where did y'all come from tonight? Now... <laughs> You ask God that question, it's not going to be the same as a visitor. You ask me, I'm going to say, well, I, originally I'm from Indiana. And, and, well, who's your father? Who, who begot you? We probably wouldn't use that term. But, but where did you come from? Well, I, you know, I, Papa Caps and Mama Caps. Those were the two people that brought me into being. And I, and, they, uh, and I was born by them in Indiana. And then you can kind of trace the line all the way back. Well, at least as far as, uh, uh, as, far as you can, whether or not the local government has kept those kind of gene genealogy uh, records intact very well. Regardless, you can trace that back and you can find where this person was originated. You can find where this person comes from and what family they belong to. When you ask God that question, well, where did you come from? I am. Well, well, who begot you? I am. And so you see how... <laughs> Maybe frustrating for some people that may be when you ask that kind of a question it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense from the very beginning but remember the difference between an unlimited unrestricted God and a limited restricted people that all of us came from him and that he has no origin he has no creation he is the creator and there's nothing before him and there's nothing after him it is just him now I understand that for a lot of people, even for some Christians, this can be a concept that is somewhat hard to maybe fathom. I think that's kind of the point. <laughs> because of our limited, restricted experience on this earth, it's hard for us to fathom that. But it is just that much more of an implication of the very power of God. This name means everything especially as you read it throughout, throughout all of the Bible. It, 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 comes, uh, it brings with it authority, all authority. It brings with it all rule and sovereignty. It brings with it an almighty power. It brings with it even something like an ever-present refuge. It means everything. And why this is so important to get who God is from the very beginning of the relationship is crucial when it comes to our own relationships with God. That idea that he is the creator. Remember how what he is, this is the... This is, I think, the encouragement that God says. This is what you can say to them. This is what you can say to them to, to really, you know, bring, to really actually, literally, bring more courage to them. Give more courage to them. And this will, just imagine their situation. They are surrounded by a culture, a harsh, oppressive culture, that is led by and guided by thousands, 
possibly millions of gods. I'm not sure exactly how many, but many, many, many gods. Little g. And gods that never answer a prayer, gods that never can actually deliver, and gods that can never actually guarantee anything, but still, these are the rules of the society they live in. And these are the rules of the society that they are slaves in. So you think about from their mindset, this name brought so much. Com- this name would have brought so much comfort just in the fact that if they were going to be delivered, who better to deliver them from all of these gods than the the God that made everything? Um, I was reading a commentary about this by Brother Bob Waldron, um, and and I really liked how he put it as he talked about this idea. He says such a name would prevent a confused identification with other gods, maybe such as Baal, Osiris, and others. But even more, it would affirm the existence of the true God and the non-existence of the false gods. And so there's a lot of things that are being implied just in the very name of the Lord, the I Am. Because no other God can make that claim. There is no other God that can make the very same claims or promises that the I Am can make. Because you ask, where did they come from? Well, ultimately, they came from man, which was created himself. But you come to this God, there's no comparison. And there is no contest when you try to put, pit this one against the other, it is always uh, Jehovah, the Almighty, being uh, that much more powerful and that much more sovereign over everything else, no matter what the ideology or, or uh, false God that, that man could bring up themselves. Not only that, not only do we have that notion of God being the creator and that, I think, bringing some encouragement to the people of Israel, but you also see that he is the same God who spoke to their fathers, especially in the middle of verse 15 there. And even at the end of verse 15, he talks about how this is my name forever and my memorial name to all generations. This aspect never leaves. Now, especially as he brings up the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, from the same commentary, I liked uh, what Brother Waldron said about this. But he says he is the God who appears to man in history, and he does. But he is the same whenever he appears. So that same God that talked about that covenant with Abraham, that same God that talked about how his children, his descendants, would be able to inherit that promised land of Canaan, And that same God that delivered not just Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob and delivered them ultimately, even when they uh, even when the the patriarchs and their um, ancestors dealt with very difficult circumstances, such as a plague or such as a, a famine, rather, not a plague throughout the earth. And can you imagine maybe the the kind of renewed strength, the vigor that would have filled their their hearts and their minds thinking about the. At least, if, at least if some of them remembered some of these stories or some of their knowledge of their history, but they could have remembered that this is the God. This is the God that maybe we've been waiting on. This is the one that we have been reminding ourselves, the one who gave these promises that we have been so looking forward to, uh, particularly about the promised land of Canaan. Now, all of that just to say, this name, this, this notion brings so much, again, encouragement, and I'd say renewed strength in a people that would have been very beaten down specifically by the, uh, the circumstances that they had to live through in that day. And so God says, this is who you tell them is sending you to them, who is going to deliver them ultimately. This is the one that you tell them they are going to follow. Well, finally with this point, this does have 
much implication all throughout the scriptures. You even go to a passage like Luke chapter 20 and verses 27 through 38. We don't have enough time to go there and read it tonight. But this is where Jesus is approached by the Sadducees. And, and we know that they don't believe in the resurrection. It says that at the beginning of the passage. But as they are trying to question Jesus, they give him this really... <laughs> random and absurd kind of example where a woman has married many, many brothers. Each of the brothers died. You kind of wonder with how absurd this question is. Is she the one killing them? But he has, she has married all of these brothers, and finally they get to the end of that. They're trying to catch him uh, in some kind of false teaching or something. And so at the end of it, they say, okay, now whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Again, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, to answer... Uh, when Jesus gives his answer, do you remember the text that he goes to? He comes back to this text. He comes back to Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Where, the very moment where God says, I am. Not, not just that he's going to deliver Israel, but that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by just <laughs> the preposition, just by the tense of, of uh, a verb that is used here, he makes doctrinal case for a resurrection. Now, if you look throughout chapters 3 and 4, you're never going to see the word resurrection used ever. And yet, Jesus comes back and he says, you don't know the power or the word of God that he has given to you. You don't know it. If you did, you could look at this and you would realize that when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not saying that he's the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And so, I think that these kind of indicators helps us study throughout the Old Testament even more so, find everything that God always intended uh, when he first gave it to, to the Israelites and even as it is passed down to us in the New Covenant. Well, you go beyond that in John chapter 8 and verse 58, it's not very hard to see what Jesus is doing as, as there are... Again, people who are trying to catch him, they are getting so frustrated with Jesus as he's going through their history, as he's talking about how they have been slaves. Even though they're sons of Abraham, they're really not. Otherwise, they would do the things of their father. They would do the things that Abraham would do. But he ends all of that by saying, hey, before Abraham was, I am. And so you, you go even into the New Testament, and this notion is not forgotten. It's just emphasized. Um, and so uh, there's a great importance even in these maybe seemingly, seemingly small details as you're just going through one very familiar passage in the Old Testament. There are great lessons that God is trying to teach us as you go throughout. Well, that was uh, something that I wanted to note before I moved on to the last point, which is where Moses begins to start uh, really a lot, giving a lot of excuses. Beginning in verse 15 of chapter 3, after God gives this description, it says, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is uh, my, my memorial name to all generations. Now picking up in, in verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you. And what has been done to you in Egypt? So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and, and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. 
I will grant this people f favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, before we get into chapter four, just. Keep this in your mind because we are going to look at uh, especially the ten plagues of Egypt uh, at some point as we go throughout the, uh, the book of Exodus. Note all of these things that God says, I am going to accomplish because every single one of them is accomplished and is fulfilled as you, as you look at how he delivers his people. He's giving very big promises from the very outset. Um, and generally, people don't do that unless they know they're going to deliver. So just keep that in mind. But picking up in verse 1 of chapter 4, Moses said then, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it, grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then he said, Put your hand back into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, moreover he shall speak for, the pe for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. And we'll stop there uh, in the middle of the chapter because it kind of just goes on with the rest of the, uh, rest of the story, the transitional period going over to, to Egypt. But, but ultimately, this is where the main story of the burning bush stops. Now, the reason I wanted to read all of that uh, at once is because you get a sense that Moses really just does not want to do this at the beginning. He gives several different excuses. For one thing, he says, well, in chapter 3 and verse 12, like we already read, I'm a, listen, I'm a nobody. Why would they believe me? You go on into the very beginning of chapter 4 and verse 1, and he says, well, listen, again, nobody's going to listen. This is, a, this is a pretty big message. Nobody's going to listen. And then finally, in verse 10, I'm not a good speaker. Well, not finally, because I think that's the last excuse. He just says, I'm not eloquent or slow of speech. What's funny to me is that every time the Lord answers, which we'll look at in just a moment, but every time the Lord answers, especially when you get to that, but I'm, I'm just, I'm so slow of speech. I'm, I'm, I'm not eloquent. God doesn't ever try to coddle him and say, you know, oh, hey, don't say that about yourself. Essentially, when you look at the response of God, it's, it's basically, I never said you were. What did I, what did I say, though? that I'm going to give you the words. 
I'm going to give you the commandments. And I'm going to give you the instruction that you need to lead and deliver this people out of the bondage of, of Egypt. But, but all of these excuses, ultimately, I think we're, we're just trying to make, uh, give Moses the opportunity to wiggle out of the responsibility that God had given him. You even see at the very end of this passage that we just read that after all of these excuses, he says, oh, please, Lord, just send whomever you will. He doesn't really mean that. Because if that's how he felt, then he would go immediately. Now, Moses does go, ultimately, and, that is, and that's a, uh, a, just one of the many examples of how Moses uh, is faithful. Ultimately, he does what the Lord asks of him. But at the beginning, it just doesn't start off that way. Um, now, I would just say after all of that, I think no matter what, the word, when we come into contact with it, presents us with a personal responsibility. I think especially about Luke chapter 9. I meant, I meant to bring this up earlier. I apologize for that. But in Luke chapter 9, in verses 57 through 62, Jesus is a, uh, has three different interactions with people. And each time we are given an example of people that are so close to following Jesus, but what do they do? They have many excuses to not do so. They are so very close to God, manifested in the flesh. But you know what? There are some other things that I have to tend to that are more important. Now, when we are presented with the gospel and we are presented with the conditions that God gives us to be a part of his kingdom, I think from... Old Testament with Moses to the New Testament with Jesus, just in a passage like Luke chapter 9, what we find is there is nothing that is more important than fulfilling the responsibility that God has given each and every one of us. It's not just a collective responsibility, it is an individual responsibility. That when you, believer or not, come to God and hear his word, you are subject to it. Now, you get to decide whether you want to obey it or not. Even Pharaoh does. But look how Pharaoh's life ends in rebellion to God and in utter humiliation because he thought, he thought that he could go against the Lord and be victorious. And so we need to remember that idea when we try to give these excuses that there is no excuse that abdicates the responsibility that God presents to us. The word presents us with personal responsibility, and we can't just uh, wiggle out of that simply just because maybe we don't want to even from the very outset. Now, again, the Lord has an answer from, for every single excuse that Moses gives, and you can just, all the passages are on the screen. You could look through all those again in chapter 3 and throughout chapter 4, and I, I think it's in interesting to look at all of those responses that God gives. But I, th I wanted to just mention that because I think even when you come to people, uh, when it comes to people who are hearing the gospel message and they see all of these responsibilities that God does require of us, I think it's easy for people to think, maybe kind of like Moses, trying to figure out what excuse they can give and trying to figure out if they can wiggle out of that responsibility. But even when it comes to not just those kinds of things, but even doubts that arise, I think that there is much encouragement that God gives throughout his scripture. Not just, in the, not just, although this is enough, in the very fact of who he is, the I am. But there are so many different things that we can look at from the Old Testament to the New Testament that give us courage, that helps us be, be, become more bold as we are trying to fulfill the goals that God has set before us. And, he, and I would just say about all these excuses, even if they were honest objections, the focus was always still in the wrong place. Remember that every answer God gives, it ultimately brings the focus back to who? Not Moses, but himself. You know, I'm not a good speaker. Uh, okay, fine. I didn't talk about that. I'm going to give you the words. 
I'm a nobody. That doesn't matter. What is the responsibility I've given you? And in every case, I think, uh, as we've been talking about with the excuses that we can get, it, whenever we give an excuse, it is always, always with the wrong focus in mind. We're thinking way too much about self and thinking far too less about the I am. Now, finally, with that being said, I think this is a good moment for application where looking at the example of Moses, we have to realize and remember, maybe not just recognize, but remember that the power is not in us, but it's always in the Lord. Um, thinking about this and thinking about uh, this example of Moses, I remember there was one Sunday where I was preaching about baptism, and I was trying to make it a very simple lesson about baptism, and this was especially at the very beginning of uh, my preaching career, and I was really trying to hone the skills, and I was trying to be a good speaker, and I was trying to do like all of these guys that I respect who can boil these things down and give it in a very easy way that anybody can understand. Well, by the end of that service, I was just devastated and depressed because it did not go at all the way I wanted it to. And there are still even some times today where I feel like that. After, uh, after preaching a lesson, after just spending a whole week on it, you get to the end of it, and you can think, wow, this is going to be the best one ever. This has been such a good study. And then you get through all of it, and you present it, and you think, wow, what a swing and a miss. I was very depressed about that for that next week. And, uh, but right after that, there was, during that week after, I believe it was a Wednesday evening, the, the, the following Wednesday evening, there was a young girl that was actually baptized. And, you know, looking at that, I was just joyful. I was just very glad. I was happy and I rejoiced with her that she was added into the kingdom of God. A little 13-year-old girl. And I was just rejoicing with everyone else, with her family and with the family at Pepper Road. Um, I did not... I knew, I knew that it had nothing to do with anything that I said because it was just terrible, right? Well, she had sent me a letter. She had handwritten a letter uh, that, that ne by the next weekend she had sent it to me. And essentially throughout that letter, she just basically said, I really appreciated the things that you said. I, I'm not kidding. It was a terrible presentation. But I kind of think about what we find with Jonah, it wasn't necessarily the most gracious of sermons that has ever been preached. It was actually one of the most judgmental sermons that ever been preached. Sounds like Jonah just wants uh, uh, Nineveh to be destroyed. He does. But even the word, the, the God's message being preached by a bad speaker, it still has the power that God intends for it to have. And it still has the power to save people because it's God's word that matters, not mine. <clears throat> And I'll just say, as I read through that letter, and she said, I really appreciate the things that you went through, even though it's not to say any of that was actually good, or a good presentation, rather. It brought me to tears, because for one thing, it, it, it encouraged me, but for another thing, it reminded me a humbling lesson that, as we've just been talking about, from Moses to ourselves, I am not a great speaker, and I'm probably never going to be as eloquent as, and as witty as J.R. Bronger. That's kind of why I quote him a lot, like I did this morning with that illustration. But that doesn't matter. Like Paul, I come and I preach Christ and Him crucified. And that message is powerful enough, so powerful that it can, that, that it can overwhelm the insufficiencies and the inadequacies of Luke Capps when he is trying to preach that message. 
And that is the message that we are uh, extending to you tonight, the invitation of Christ. Are you someone who has read through the Bible, someone who has been faced with the gospel and realized that, as we said this morning, you've been found wanting? Do you realize that there are things that God has expected from you, responsibilities that he says he wants for you to take up, but you are just not doing that yet? If you're a Christian and you feel that way, use the family here. We're here to help each other get to heaven, and we want to do that as much as possible. We would rejoice with you if you would be able to, to use us as that family to encourage you, bolster you in, in your relationship with God. But realize if you haven't started a relationship with God, there is no courage, there is no bolstering, there is no boon for you to rely on that can take away the absolute insufficiencies and inadequacies of ourselves and of the rest of the world. We cannot save ourselves, but God gives us the means to, to reach that goal of heaven, to reach that gospel plan of salvation. If you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand.